0: So I'm going to get right into it, not going to do this long intro, but I'm going to throw so much information at you uh, in history about this whole Ukraine and Russia conflict that you probably haven't heard anything like this anywhere else. Don't forget to subscribe, like the video, share the video, these videos have been getting censored, uh, especially when you're not feeding into that general mainstream media narrative. So before I start, I do want to say, you, we all need to have an open mind. I'm extremely patriotic I love my country I'll die for this country but I am well aware that the United States does overstep sometimes and when it comes to war it's not always black and white in fact it's probably never black and white there's two sides and that's kind of what I want to paint a picture of today and if you hear me fumbling around papers it's because I have all my notes and everything furthermore I want to disclose that all the information I Go over is from uh, Government policy and documents official government documents actual video evidence and I have one essay from Brookings that is a very good information piece and I'll link all of this stuff in the description So you can go and verify everything I'm saying um, as it is so We need to go back to Ronald Reagan Mikhail Gorbachev They start forming a very respective Uh, relationship with each other something that has not yet occurred between the US and the Soviet Union they made leaps and bounds and even though Gorbachev was a communist he still opened up the door for a more progressive Russia or Soviet Union for that matter when it came time to knock down the Berlin Wall and reunify Germany. James Baker, a US official and Western German leadership, promised Gorbachev that NATO would not continue to expand past Germany. They just wanted the reunification and that was it, he didn't need to worry about it. In 1991, Boris Yeltsin is elected as the President of Russia. Now we need to understand when the Soviet Union existed, you had states no different than like the United States. and You had the federal government, and then you had the states. When the Soviet Union collapsed, this was due to Boris Yeltsin getting together with leadership in Ukraine and Belarus in a secret meeting, signing an agreement that ultimately dissolved the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. Gorbachev, being the leader of the Soviet Union, was immediately undermined and had no more power. This was a successful coup attempt by Yeltsin. Yeltsin was favored by the United States. Getting that in a second, but following the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had a few big things take place. The first is you now had these newly formed independent countries that just went from being a communist society to a free market society literally overnight. The The economies of these countries were terrible. Inflation was skyrocketing. Uh, They had nothing. You had elderly people who had social welfare benefits that lost everything. Like Imagine losing Social Security when you're already in retirement and can't work anymore. That's what went on in these former Soviet states. The United States brings in three policies that really sway how this thing went. The first and most important one is the Freedom Support Act of 1992. It's on congress.gov, again I'll post a link, this is the summary of it. What the Freedom Support Act did was it was going to offer economic and humanitarian aid to these former Soviet states as long as they abided by the rules and restrictions that this bill placed on. It says that the goal of the bill was to provide immediate humanitarian needs, establishing a free society, or a democratic and free society, creating private enterprise and free market system based on the principle of private ownership of property and promoting trade and investment. Now, myself, as a fellow capitalist, I agree. It also prohibited any country, especially Russia, if it failed to make progress on the removal of troops from Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and has failed to undertake good effort a good faith efforts to end other military practices that violate the sovereignty of the Baltic states. So the next provision of this, and this opened the door for all the corruption you hear about with the whole Hunter Biden deal and these American businesses going over to Ukraine and taking advantage of a new emerging unregulated marketplace. It wasn't just Ukraine, it was all around the world, but this bill opened the door for it to happen in that region. Title three: Business and Commercial Development. It encourages the president to establish the American business centers in the independent states where the president determines that such centers can be cost-effective in promoting the objectives of Title II and U.S. economic interests and in establishing commercial partnerships between the United States and the Independent States. The entire goal of this bill was to expand U.S. business interests in these new regions that they never had control before. It also made funds available from the overseas private investment corporation program in these independent states, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation Program. I've talked about this on my show. That's the OPIC. The OPIC is the main driver of why politicians can get rich and, and make money in these you know, endeavors and no one knows about it. I'll go into that more when I get there, but just remember the OPIC. Now, Title V of this agreement, is the non-proliferation non-pro- and disarmament programs and activities. It permits non-proliferation assistance to be obligated for an independent state only if the president has certified to the Congress that such state is committed to, one, making a substantial investment of its resources for dismantling or destroying weapons of mass destruction if obligated to do so under an agreement, for going, which is, by the way, under the... Um, Another 1991 agreement of uh, the Chemical, Biological, and Nuclear Weapons Removal Act. So they all were under this agreement. Uh, Forgoing any military modernization program that exceeds legitimate defense requirements and forgoing the replacement of destroyed weapons of mass destruction. Three, forgoing any use uh, in nuclear weapons of components or destroyed nuclear weapons and facilitating us verification of weapons destruction carried out under this act or the soviet nuclear threat reduction act of 1991 so they had to uh get rid of their weapons programs and the reason you know you may be thinking well only russia has them no actually ukraine i believe became the second or third largest nuclear power as soon as the ussr collapsed they had like 1800 nuclear weapons They also had the chemical and biological labs. So when all this happens, the USSR is now gone. You have independent states, but Russia had had citizens that were actually stationed and living in these states, Russians. There were 700,000 Russian soldiers in Ukraine. Crimea was almost entirely Russian. Crimea also was home to the Black Fleet in Sevastopol, still is. So you had millions of Russian citizens that were immediately, illegally and unlawfully in these other states by the signing of a pen. Ukraine wanted all of the military servicemen and women that were Russian in Ukraine to pledge allegiance to Ukraine. And they also wanted ownership of all the weapons that were left in Ukraine. This didn't go down well with the Russians. Ukraine also relied almost entirely on Russian energy at this time. So I'm not going to go too in-depth, but I will say that disputes between the two countries, territorial disputes, disputes and economic disputes, ended up with Russia using the its own energy as leverage against Ukraine and threatening to completely cut it off. So this goes on through the 90s. Ukraine and Russia are experiencing inflation at like 50 to 100 percent per month. think about that. right now we're experiencing 7.9 percent inflation. They were experiencing 50 to 100 percent per month. It was not a good time. We also had a Balkan conflict. That is another conflict, a complicated uh, dispute that I'm not going to go in-depth in, but that's your Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, that whole region. Russia gets involved. The United States came out with the Wolfowitz Doctrine, or formerly known as the Bush Doctrine. What this was was, It was the defense strategy for the U.S. between 1994 and 1999. It was written in 1992, though. It was a classified document, but it was leaked to the New York Times. You can go back and find this on Google. And the ultimate goal of that document was to reevaluate the U.S. military strategy around the world. We just spent 70 years spending countless dollars building countless weapons and technology to try and win the Cold War and protect us from a possible Soviet threat, the Soviet threat was gone. So the United States was now the sole superpower of the world. China doesn't even isn't even in the picture yet. Their sole superpower, and the Wolfowitz Doctrine basically says that we will remain the sole superpower, and we will never let another country challenge us. And these non-democratic countries, uh you're a threat, and we're going to take care of you. And we're going to squash international threats before it happens because we left this job up to the Englands and the Frances back in World War One and World War II, and both times they failed. And it ended up costing not just millions of lives in Europe, but hundreds of thousands of American lives for a war that they didn't even start. Another portion, going back to World War One, and World War II, is both times the United States drew down its forces following the wars and kind of shifted focus away from the military. And both times they were caught standing flat-footed and unprepared. You had Pearl Harbor, and then they even go as far as using the Korean War as an example. When quoted in there, the United States was almost pushed off of the entire peninsula into the water by a third-rate power. And they will never let that happen again. You know, hindsight, we see that it did. But uh, that was the writing of of this doctrine. Now, another important aspect of this is that we are going to build a democratic defense community, NATO, and we're going to expand it. And we're actually going to focus on getting Ukraine and a democratic Russia into this community. We want them in this community. But they need to be democratic. They need to follow our rules. We're also going to build up our forces so strong that the United States will be able to take care of itself. We're going to grow partnerships, and we're going to utilize our allies, and in some cases, we're going to make it seem like you know, these other organizations like a regional regional organization or maybe the UN is in control and they're taking the lead, right? And we're just helping out. We're going to give it that, that appearance. But in reality, it's the United States that controls it. And if our allies don't want to get on board, then we don't need them. We'll do it ourselves. And as we see, they've done a good job at building our military up to do that. We could take care of anything at the moment. Uh, and they said, you know, we're going to remain the biggest and baddest forced to ever walk this earth right now and for the foreseeable future that was the objective of that defense strategy but it focused on protecting American interest be it uh, defense interests strategic uh, economic interest whatever all around the world so when you ask well, why are we getting into these little conflicts everywhere, it all derives from that doctrine. Russia had to sit back and reevaluate its own military strategy as well. And I'm going to read kind of what that involves. So in the Balkan conflict, Russia ended up getting involved, which immediately barred them from receiving any assistance under the Freedom Support Act. And Russia said, Hey, allow us to use our peacekeepers and send peacekeepers into this region because we've been keeping peace here for the last couple hundred years. And we know the cultures and, and allow us just, just pay us to do it. Sounds like a good deal, but the United States was skeptical about their intentions and said that given Russia's history, they actually tend to go in and incite more violence than they do squashing the violence. So they said no. Now, Some of Russia's objectives, Uh, and this is from their documentation, it says Russia's current objectives, which which closely parallel its historic geostrategic objectives, include guaranteeing its access to warm water ports in the Black Sea and Baltic Seas. By the way, the only warm water port going into the Black Sea is the Dnieper River that splits Ukraine. Maintaining a buffer zone between Russia and its traditional rivals, Turkey, Iran, and China. You have Kazakhstan as kind of a buffer uh, between China, even though they do have a border with China. And you have Georgia, the Chechnya area um, would border it, or would keep you know keep that buffer between them and Turkey, and plus the Black Sea. Uh, and then Iran, you have all the other Middle Eastern countries that they're over. And... The European powers to the west. So they had Belarus, they had the Baltic states still at that time, and then they have Ukraine. Preserving the Russian hegemony in the region and preventing other regional powers from emerging. Retaining control over raw materials in the former republics, including oil, gas, and minerals, which there was dispute between in Ukraine about this. Ensuring access to industrial facilities in former republics. Retaining control over the defense industrial complex in the former republics and including nuclear power plants and nuclear hardware, and guaranteeing markets for its products, it also emirates the following as being sources for external threat which Russia could, will act on militarily: a territorial claim on Russia if it if on Russia and its allies, current and potential hotbeds of local wars and armed conflicts in the vicinity of Russian borders, possible utilization of nuclear and other weapons of mass destruction, the suppression of rights, freedoms, and legitimate interests of Russian-speaking citizens in foreign states, and attacks on Russian armed forces and military facilities in foreign countries. This was written in the 90s. This whole Ukraine conflict contains violations of all of those. All of the literally, Ukraine has a civil war going on right at Russia's border. Um, they don't want the expansion of NATO. They don't want um, you know the suppression of rights and freedoms and legitimate interests of Russian-speaking citizens in four states in Ukraine. The um, they tried to make Russia, I believe, the second language. There's something there. Uh, They tried to, or it may have been the opposite way around, but they tried to actually suppress the the Russians in Ukraine and the Russian-speaking people. And then um, the, you know, protection of nuclear threats, you see Putin going in there and bombing nuclear power plants. Moving on, though, the first part of those about their interest, warm water ports, Maintaining a buffer zone, which they were losing, and um, combating the rise of international powers in that region, which would be NATO. All Russia is doing right now is abiding by their own defense strategy. Which, by the way, the United States would do the exact same thing. But how did we get here? So, Yeltsin was actually backed by the United States. The the United States favored him heavily. Right here it says that uh, the United States government does not want to be perceived as guilty of having lost Russia, but does it want to be responsible for the loss of 14 newly independent states. They need to weigh the two. Although no one in the administration has suggested publicly that these states are expendable, the U.S. is acquiescing in the de facto reconstitution of the USSR by turning its head as Russia maneuvers its way back into the affairs of all its former republics, the details in the Russian, uh, in this report suggest that while Yeltsin is still in power and while the U.S. retains a degree of influence with Russian government, the United States should give serious consideration to alternative policies. As for example, be tough on the issue of the Baltic states and demand that Russia quickly comply with its agreement to withdraw troops from Estonia and Latvia. Um, oppose attempts by Russia to install Russian peacekeepers unilaterally in the former Soviet republics. Do not simply farm off responsibility to allied regional powers such as Turkey, make symbolic moves in the region to demonstrate that the entire U.S. policy is not Moscow-centric, such as initiating high-level meetings with heads of state that are not simply an adjunct to meetings in Moscow, inviting heads of state to Washington, D.C., offering high-profile technical assistance to individual states for the development of key infrastructure, creating prestigious fellowship programs for each individual state rather than for the former Soviet republics as a bloc. So they wanted to identify each one of these countries as their own country, and they wanted Russia to abide by the principles that they laid out in in the Freedom Support Act. Otherwise, they were actually going to favor taking the side of the newly independently formed countries instead of Russia. That was the U.S. thinking when it came to this. Now, Yeltsin becomes a drunk. Or he may have already been a drunk, but he becomes really bad. He's an alcoholic. In 1998, towards the end of his reign, I think the United States is actually seeing Yeltsin kind of... He's, he's on his way out. So what does NATO do? NATO goes and breaks their promise... That was made to Gorbachev, and they expand and take in three countries. Yeltsin questions this move, and the United States, you know, or Yeltsin says, hey, you guys made a promise you weren't going to expand. The United States says, no, we promised the Soviet Union that we wouldn't expand NATO. We didn't promise Russia. And even if we did, that agreement wasn't even formal. It wasn't even written down. That didn't go down well. Now Putin comes into office in 2000. The first thing Putin does is ask to join NATO. His When he asked to join NATO, he asked to bypass the application process and jump in front of the line past the countries that don't matter. Quote: This is all documented. And NATO said no. Now remember, in the Wolfowitz Doctrine, their whole objective was to get a democratic Russia into NATO. But they didn't want to be lenient on Russia, so they said no. They denied him access. Then, Putin has to join the European Union. He gets the same answer. No. When 9-11 happens, Putin reaches out to George Bush and offers him all the support that he wants. Russia even allowed the US military to use their infrastructure in the Middle East to carry out operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. Russia gets absolutely nothing in return. Actually, what they get is further expansion of NATO. NATO keeps continuing east. So Putin is looking at this and saying, they deny me access, they deny Russia access to NATO, but they keep expanding NATO. Well that must mean that NATO is actually hostile towards Russia, and they're perceiving Russia as the threat and the reason for expansion. NATO was initially created to protect Europe and the world from Soviet aggression. And Putin states that since the Soviet Union is no longer around, there's really no legitimate reason for NATO to exist. So it's definitely not legitimate. If you're not going to let the second world power join, but you're going to let the other states join, I thought about this a little bit. What I think the reason is is the United States looked at Russia's defense strategy and how they wanted to intervene in these former Soviet republics. And if Russia joined NATO and kept their strategy, and kept intervening in these regions, NATO would be forced to back them. And they weren't going to have that. That seems pretty reasonable to me. Um, I don't know what kind of talks, you know, derived around that concept. I'm sure they discussed it. But the more I thought about it, that, to me, is why they didn't want Russia and NATO. They also knew they weren't going to be able to control Russia as much as they were the other countries. And this shows in 2004 in Ukraine, there's a presidential election between Viktor Yushchenko and Viktor Yanukovych. Viktor Yushchenko is Western-backed. Not only is he Western-backed, but his wife worked in the Reagan administration at the White House. We know him pretty well. Viktor Yanukovych is the opposite. He's actually a Russian-leaning, you know, candidate. The election takes place, and Ukraine's vote is split right down the middle. It's a very close election, and Eastern Ukraine votes in favor of the pro-Russian candidate, and Western Ukraine votes in favor of Yushchenko. Yanukovych wins. The Russian pro-Russian candidate wins. Immediately, the West cries uh, fraud. And protests spark up in Ukraine because everyone's thinking that this election is fraudulent. Now, I want you to think about this. The United States asked Ukraine and these other states to become democratic, become free market societies, which they were trying to. And the first time they go out, not the first time, but, you know, when they actually go out and have a democratic vote, and the United States doesn't like the candidate that wins... They say, nah, fuck that. You know, we're voting again. And they actually negotiate another vote. When that vote's finished, Viktor Yushchenko is now the winner, the Western-backed candidate. So they just ousted the guy they didn't want. That's 2004. That's the start of the Orange Revolution. So around the same time, in 2005, This is where it starts getting sketchy. A new senator, a young president, you know, or soon to be president, but a new senator, Barack Obama, and Senator Richard Lugar take a trip to Ukraine. And they broker an agreement, a weapons proliferation agreement. And what the agreement is, is some people thought that it meant that, you know, they wanted Ukraine to give up their uh, biological and weapons program, weapons programs no actually all it did was create a partnership between the department of defense and the ukrainian ministry of health with these labs these bio labs exist they 100 percent exist there's undeniable evidence from our own government that they exist so don't listen to any fact checker um what the department of defense wanted is they wanted to be able to contract private businesses from the United States to come and operate and perform the research and construct these labs. And any of the research that was conducted with pathogens or anything else in these labs was to remain confidential, completely confidential and only shared between the U S department of defense and the Ukrainian ministry of health. So, That actually would be a violation, though, of the Freedom Support Act of 1991. Now, I do want to bring up the nuclear weapons. The Budapest Memorandum in 1994, Ukraine had to give up all their nuclear weapons. They they had 1,800 of them. Ukraine was initially, during the 90s, using these weapons as leverage, trying to keep Russia off their back. But the United States saw that there was an ensuing conflict happening, and Russia was worried that Ukraine was going to end up using them, too. So Russia and the United States actually get together, along with the UK, and they agree that, you know, we'll recognize Ukraine's sovereignty and independence. The U.S. even agreed to protect Ukraine. Uh, but Ukraine needed to give up their nuclear weapons. They did. They gave up all of them. But they still had the bio and chemical labs. That was still a violation of the Freedom Support Act. Now it's not. Immediately following this agreement with Barack Obama, which they funded $15 million for, Congress puts in legislation in the form of the Nunn Lugar Act of 2005, which I believe the official one that was passed is the Nunn Lugar Act of 2007. It's the same bill. What this did was it repealed the provisions in the Freedom Support Act of 1991 regarding the former Soviet states. And receiving aid it says that um, now they can actually under supervision uh, you know do these weapons programs they can do the biological research in these facilities they're allowed to and still receive aid from the US government but they need to abide by US regulations and they need to contract American businesses to come over and do the research or help out with it it needed to be a joint effort and that repealed the restrictions in the first act. So, the timing is impeccable. They just overthrow an election, they replace Ukraine's president with the guy that they wanted, and then they go over and immediately start brokering agreements to allow private businesses to partake in in the economy in Ukraine. The president, Yushchenko, his presidency was an absolute dud. The only notable thing he actually did was give Stepan Bandera hero status. Stepan Bandera is a known Nazi that was from Ukraine, fought in World War II, and was suspected of killing over 30,000 Jews. So this guy the U.S. just put in just gave hero status to a Nazi. Nazi. A new election comes along, 2010. Viktor Yushchev, or Viktor Yanukovych wins that election, no questions asked, hands down. He's the Russian-backed candidate. Immediately, he's trying to find solutions to boost Ukraine's economy because it is in the shitter. And per interviews with him, he says he had two options at, on the table. They were. Hoping to strike a deal with the International Monetary Fund, which was created to for these purposes and help these, you know, poor newer economies grow but the The offer that the IMF made to Ukraine was going to be extremely costly and it wasn't feasible They tried to negotiate with the IMF and ultimately the IMF refused any any more negotiations So it didn't work out. The other option was a free trade agreement with Russia Russia had opened its hands his, or put its hand down and said, "Look, we want to you know, you have a very pro-Russian society, at least half of your country is Russian and Russian speaking. Let's have open borders, let's have open trade. All of your produce and your farm stuff bring it over, sell it on the Russian market. We'll help you out." And they do that. But at the same time, Ukraine starts trying to broker a relationship with the European Union. Putin had told Yanukovych that he, we can do the free trade agreement, but you need to keep Russian interests in mind above anything else. And the EU deal that was being brokered was going to allow European goods because of this free trade agreement with Ukraine and Russia to come through Ukraine and into Russia without any negotiations. And Putin was not going to have that. It was going to flood the Russian markets and crush Russian businesses potentially. So, soon after, in November, around November two thousand and thirteen, Yanukovych told, tells the EU that we're halting negotiations. We're 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 just we're not moving forwards with it, and we're going to halt negotiations with the Russians as well. My opinion now. Why did he do it? I think, obviously, Putin didn't want to join the EU, but I think the United States was very aggravated because they were trying to expand their sphere of influence into Ukraine. And having them uh, partnered with the European Union gives the U.S. substantial influence in Ukraine. So when they halted that, now you see protests spark up from opposition groups, opposition groups being those that oppose Viktor Yanukovych. These opposition groups are actually funded, with evidence, by the way, by the NED, which is the National Endowment for Democracy. Started in the Reagan administration. Reagan uh, changed this. It used to be the CIA that would go and fund political activist groups in other countries. He said, no more, now it's going to be the NED. The NED not only funded these protests, but they also fund, funded uh, three new TV stations, along with a organization started by George Soros. All this will be in the description. There's actual evidence of Soros talking about this. This isn't a secret. The goal of these TV stations was to just inject a massive propaganda campaign against Viktor Yanukovych. These protests, the first night, end up getting violent. The news says that the police went and started, you know, beating on the protesters that were sleeping in tents. But when you watch the footage, the protesters were actually coming in and throwing Molotov cocktails, rocks, bats, all that stuff and abusing the police. And it just this huge retaliation. These trained groups were actually paid off by the United States like an Antifa group, which, by the way, they use the same symbols as Black Lives Matter, all these groups that the United States has been involved with, so keep that in mind, uh, to go in, spark this, this uh, conflict and these protests, and they knew that it would piss people off because now people thought that Viktor Yanukovych gave the police orders to go and start beating on the protesters. So the protests end up growing, and they end up getting more violent. Now, a string of events occurred, but the one that really sticks out is John McCain and other high-up U.S. officials go to Ukraine, and they give a speech to the protesters in Kiev, and they state their support for the protesters in their attempt to overthrow the government of Ukraine. Now I want you to think. Imagine riots happening in Washington, DC, but a foreign, like Vladimir Putin or one of his henchmen, like high up people that is well known around the world, because John McCain just got running, got done running for a presidential election at this point. Everyone knew who he was coming over, standing in front of the White House, giving a speech to the protesters and said, we support you and your attempt to overthrow the U.S. government. There would be a war. And that's what the U.S. did. Victoria Newland and the ambassador Geoffrey Pyatt is also uh, has a recorded phone call of them discussing staging a coup to oust Viktor Yanukovych. Ultimately, uh, when Viktor Yanukovych is in Kharkiv, these protesters go and seize his personal residence and officially the entire government in Kiev. Now, this is after very violent protests, right? But Viktor Yanukovych now has no choice but to flee and seek asylum in Russia. Following this incident, a temporary government kind of came into place until a new one was established. A temporary government was those far-right-leaning People, those, you know, Azov, you see it on the news, that that Nazi group that's in um, the military. Those are the type of people that are now controlling the Ukrainian government temporarily. That's where the whole denazification deal comes in. They get a new government, but a massive civil war strikes up in the eastern part of Ukraine, which, by the way, the eastern part of Ukraine is pro Russian. So they are trying to pull away and secede. Crimea, since 2014, Crimea, Crimea was not officially a part of Ukraine. Some people say it was, some people say it wasn't. There's a lot of stuff that goes back. Russia claims that, you know, when Crimea was given to Ukraine, it was illegal. Then you have a lot of stuff. But there is a fact. The fact is that Russia has had soldiers in Crimea forever. Sevastopol was home to the Black Fleet. Um, the other thing is that they didn't invade Crimea. Crimea asked to be annexed by Russia. And when they held a vote, 95% of the people living in Crimea that voted, voted in support of joining Russia. Those numbers aren't coming from Russia. Those numbers are actually coming from United States uh, entities that ran the polls and got the data. A legitimate 95% of Crimeans wanted to join Russia. So, this kind of goes back, though. Why would we keep saying, well, why, they're saying it's an invasion. Um, and Remember, this is 2014. You know what else happened in 2014. So, they just get rid of Viktor Yanukovych, and the U.S. basically implements uh, the government that they want. Rosemont Seneca, who is Hunter Biden's business that he started with Devon Archer and Christopher Hines, who's John Kerry's stepson. And Devon Archer was a senior political advisor on John Kerry's presidential campaign, by the way. He's in jail for securities fraud and conspiracy. But Christopher Hines and Hunter Biden aren't. They started Rosemont Seneca. They go over and they start investing in businesses. The businesses they invest in. Uh, Ch2m, Hill, Metabiota, Black and Beach, all of them are the ones that are doing the operations at the bio labs in Ukraine. This is a government contract, an official government contract, uh, issued July twenty eighth, two thousand twenty one, just last year. It's a three for three point six million dollars, and they are looking for an entity to go over to Ukraine and basically clean up these bio labs and continue work that CH2M Hill was doing. They state, quote, this the government saying this just last year, that there was a substantial risk that the Ukrainian government was going to start operating these labs, which had a license to work with the most dangerous pathogens, the highest level pathogens there are without any approval or any oversight from any foreign regulator. So they needed someone to go in there and make sure that they were going to you know, do it the right way. <clears throat> Obviously, Russia sees this. But this is a real contract. These labs exist. Anyone that's denying that this stuff's not going on, it is. And the Bidens have a hand in it. Rosemont Seneca actually themselves stated the relationship between these companies and said that they were financial backers to them and listed these companies on their website. CH2M Hill is kind of like a, it evolved to CH2M Hill. It was Hill International, who was owned by one of Biden's friends. Hillstone International is a subsidiary of Hill, Hill International. Hillstone International got government contracts with no experience to go and start rebuilding um, buildings and construction progress in Iraq after the war. Joe Biden's brother, with no construction past, was the vice president of Hillstone International. So this it's a big uh, circle here. Hunter Biden also sat on the board of Burisma. So did Devon Archer. Burisma is the largest energy company in Ukraine. Burisma was started in 2002. In 2006, it consolidated, but one of the businesses that it consolidated with was uh, let me see if I can find is the Sunshine, or sorry, Sunrise Energy Resources. Sunrise Energy Resources was started in 1991 following the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. The timing of this is just it's just crazy no experience at all no 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 operations at all but their agenda was to go and uh do developmental uh gas and gas production uh in Ukraine also with explore, exploratory um stuff as well in Ukraine in 2004 they finally get a license following the presidential election overthrow there They finally get a license, and in 2005, they start doing operations in Ukraine. Again, 2005 is that Nunn-Lugar Act, when they repealed all the restrictions and allowed these businesses to go over from the U.S. and um, and start making money. These businesses are funded by the OPIC, the Overseas uh, Private Investment Corporation. It's a government entity, and they... The OPIC provides these American businesses with guaranteed loans, but also gives them political risk insurance. Political risk insurance in countries that are already politically risky It is no differently. What the OPIC is doing is no different than a life insurance company approving insurance for a dead guy and then paying the claim because he died. No one does that. Except our government, and every country that they the OPIC was funding and giving insurance to, were countries that all either already had a conflict ongoing or very soon after had a conflict, and there's a reason why. So Congo, Afghanistan, Georgia, Ukraine, um, Venezuela, you have stuff going on in Mexico that's politically risky. You have there's so many of these other Egypt, right? All of them had an uprising or some kind of conflict. And all of those conflicts, Libya is another one by the way. All of these conflicts you know are usually tend to come back and there's theories about the United States being involved in it. Well, when you get a claim on this insurance, you don't report it as income and it's not taxable. And it's and it's replacing your potential lost revenue for this year but also for future projections. And that's how these politicians, because these businesses are very politically connected, these politicians are getting a cut of it because there's no one tracking it. Congress is the one that also dictates who's getting this money. They're in the driver's seat to cutting the checks to the businesses that they want to go over there. Why the fuck is a business that started in Delaware, by the way? Sunrise Energy Resources was started in Delaware in 1991. You know, kind of a uh, coincidence. No experience, and we're going to give them loans and political risk insurance to go into a fucking conflict-ridden country where the election just got overthrown by the United States, basically, and allow them to start doing law operations. Well, when Crimea was annexed, Burisma had uh, subsidiaries subsidiaries in Crimea that basically controlled all of the energy production in Crimea. When it was annexed, those operations halted. Russia halted those operations. Now you know why the United States is calling it an invasion of Crimea, when it wasn't. There were no shots fired, nothing was not an invasion. They're calling it that, though, because of money. They lost money because their operations were cut off. Now you have this civil war going on that breaks out, and it becomes a bad civil war. The uh, Ukraine actually deploys its military into this region and they are going at it. Over 20,000 people end up dying from this war and Ukraine was having bombing campaigns with fighter jets, all of that. And the other side wasn't guilt, uh, innocent either because Russia was backing them. This is a, It's no different than what we're seeing right now. It just wasn't actually Russia involved at that point directly. So they end up having a ceasefire agreement in Minsk. This is the Minsk agreements. In 2017, after the Minsk agreements, Ukraine puts it in their constitution that they're gonna join NATO. In 2019, Zelensky signs off a new security agreement that kind of solidifies stronger ties with the United States and also reaffirms that Ukraine is going to join NATO. Now, the question is, well, why didn't Putin invade then? You have two reasons, I think. Now, some people may not like my first answer, but Trump was elected in 2016. I think Putin knew what he was getting with other politicians that had been in the industry for 40 years. The Bidens, the Obamas, the Clintons, all that he expected. Trump was an outsider, and very unpredictable. I believe Trump also told him that if he went into Ukraine, he was going to bomb Moscow. I don't know how true that is, but I think it just got Putin thinking that he didn't want to deal with an unpredictable person. I also think that in 2020, we had COVID, and the pandemic probably, probably delayed any invasion that was going to end up taking place. But Putin has been wide open on his opinion on NATO expansion. And he does not want a NATO country on his border, even though they do on the northwest border now with the Baltic states. But he did not want Ukraine especially, because that gives up another warm water port. But he doesn't want the United States putting military establishments in Ukraine right on Russia's borders and having missiles right on Russia's borders. He also knows that the Russian military is far inferior to uh, NATO and that any confrontation between the two would ultimately have to be uh, defended with nuclear weapons from Russia. He said this, he said this for a while now. So you know, there's a lot of speculation there, but I think that a lot of the United States interests in this region were actually genuine at the beginning with the Wolfowitz Doctrine and what they were trying to do, I can completely understand what the United States was trying to achieve. And, I, and when you read the Russian defense strategy, it makes it even more understandable on why the tensions with Russia never uh, were cured. But I think that those interests have long evolved since 1992. And I think now the U.S. interests are more of a financial and business interest, not for the U.S. economy, not for the U.S. citizens, but for the people that are making these decisions, the politicians that are going and getting a cut of all of these businesses over in these regions. There's too much evidence. There's too much that supports their um, financial dealings in these nations. And I think it's a shame, honestly, because I th- think that maybe some of this conflict wasn't going to be avoided, but we probably didn't need to be involved at all. And I think we definitely put gas on the fire. Um, and not to mention, it's illegal for what the politicians are doing. It's highly illegal because they're not acting in our best interest anymore. They're acting in their own best interest, which is the exact opposite of how it's supposed to be. They're serving us, not themselves. So that's kind of a good overview. I'm going to probably end up doing another video going more in depth on the whole business side of this and the economic stuff that went on in the early 90s between Russia and Ukraine and then other uh, areas of the world as well. But this is really important to know because you're not going to hear this from the mainstream media. You're not going to hear that the U.S. backed these protests that, that we are a large part in all this conflict and Russia is actually just going and abiding by their own defense strategy that they wrote 30 years ago. And the United States would do the same thing. The other thing, just recently, yesterday, uh, they uncovered the mass graves. I can't remember the city's name. It's like 410 Ukrainian civilians that were killed. Some of them torture, some of them executed. They're blaming it on Russian soldiers. I was listening to the UN meeting today, and I was listening to the Russian representative talk. I'll say this. Don't jump to conclusions, especially given the history of opposition and protest and how those were artificially created to achieve a goal. Do not jump to conclusions on who did this human rights violation. Because our president, Biden, just last week was calling for regime change. Whether the White House says it or not, he, quote, said, Putin cannot remain in power. He's long accused Putin of being a war criminal. And all of a sudden now we have this, the, these killings, these, this murder situation and they are now calling for Putin to be brought up on charges, in trial. So do not think for a second that we wouldn't back up Biden's claims and trying to, you know, force a regime change, but doing it in a legal sense and and you know bringing him up on trial, uh, and prosecuting him for what he's done in Ukraine. So just again, take everything with a grain of salt. Keep an open mind. Just understand that. This is a big gray area, and there's two sides to every situation. So, if you like the video, hit subscribe. Uh, We're going to do more, and be sure to check us out, Real Conservative Talk, we're usually on every day at 6 central. Thank you.